0: Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Today, you may have heard of diamond-encrusted jewelry, but imagine a diamond-encrusted planet. New research suggests that tiny Mercury is not only closest to the Sun, its crust could contain 16 quadrillion tons of diamonds. We speak to the scientists behind the research to find out why. We welcome Giller Prize-winning author Omar al-Aqqad to talk about his book, What Strange Paradise? A story of war, displacement, disorientation, and the dreams of those fleeing violence. A conversation that is particularly timely, given the millions leaving the war in Ukraine. But first, Europe has tried to rid itself of its deep dependence on Russian energy. And Canada is promising to raise output of oil and natural gas to help in the short term. But what can this country do to help provide longer-term global energy security? And how can it be reconciled with our climate change goals? Here we mark one month today since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. There's been a lot of talk in this country about the impact it will have domestically, whether it be aid to Ukraine, how best to bring Ukrainians fleeing violence to this country. We'll talk about that later. If we need to increase military spending and energy, specifically energy security. Here's why. Russia is the European Union's biggest natural gas supplier, accounting for more than 40% of imports. It also relies on the country for the biggest share of its coal and oil imports. In 2021, the EU imported $108 billion worth of energy from Russia. Here's Finland's Prime Minister, Sanna Marin.
1: As long as we are purchasing energy from Russia, we are financing the war. And this is the big problem that we have.
0: So, obviously, Europe now looking to wean itself off Russian energy. And that's where Canada, holder of the world's third largest oil reserves, comes in. This country says it can produce, producers can boost exports of oil and natural gas to the US this year as part of an international effort to help the world move away from Russian energy. By the end of this year, Canadian producers will be positioned, according to the natural resources minister, Jonathan Wilkinson, to export an extra 200,000 barrels a day of oil to the US. He said that during a conference call from Paris with the International Energy Agency today. Now, Ottawa says it has no plans to compromise its climate goals, but there is a, but is there a balance that could also see the country help provide this much needed energy security to meet a fast changing geopolitical reality? Joining me now is Dennis McConaughey. He's a former pipeline executive and author on climate and energy issues in Canada. Welcome to the show, Dennis. Great to be with you. As we are on the one-month anniversary of the invasion, I guess one of the areas where it's had the greatest impact, simply because of the kind of business Russia does, is on energy. Uh, Just how much of an impact has this war had uh, on not only energy markets, but also our way of thinking about energy security? Well, I think it's
2: fair to say that the issue of energy security has now come back to being a preeminent consideration when for virtually the last 20 years, it's been utterly uh, dismissed as a consideration uh, and has been entirely subordinated to things like climate change. So it's, a lot has changed uh, with an urgency that came about because of the invasion. And for a country like Canada, I think this is important to emphasize at the outset. Canada is fundamentally self-sufficient in energy. The issue for Canada, is it going to make a contribution to global energy security by producing more hydrocarbons? That's really the issue for Canada.
0: And that is, as you've mentioned in the past, that creates a collision between what we, what has been uh, a policy direction for several years in this country towards uh, more decarbonization. Uh, So, what does that look like if Canada suddenly has to start making decisions about whether to contribute to global energy security or contribute to the global fight against uh, climate change?
2: Well, let's, let's, let's get very specific about one area, natural gas in Central Europe. You know, If Central Europe, which really means the German economy, but all those countries that border the Ukraine that have accepted so many refugees, all of them are highly dependent on Russian gas. So how does that change over time? Well, obviously, one way that changes over time is they can import more LNG. And so that means the world has to increase its LNG production. And one of the places in the world that can do that is North America. Uh, The United States is already a a major LNG exporter, but they have the capacity to do more. And so, frankly, does Canada. So when we talk about this right now, uh, Canada has one project, the LNG Canada Project and the Associated Coastal Gas Link Pipeline that will supply gas from northeast BC and northwest Alberta to Kitimat to produce LNG. That project is still trying to move forward, been beset by both various uh, civil disobedience disruptions and, you know, the heavy hand of regulation from the federal government. But frankly, Canada could probably do two or three more of those kinds of projects, whether they go to Kitimat or to Prince Rupert or even potentially off the East Coast of Canada. And that would be, again, another contribution to world LNG supply, which would make Central Europe less reliant on on Russian imports. So that, to me, is one of the great questions. Is Canada going to try to facilitate that by basically saying, we're going to expedite the completion of LNG Canada and basically ask for uh, proposals to add more LNG capacity. And if we were to do that, uh, and we need to be intellectually honest about this, uh, there would be more incremental carbon emissions that would arise from the liquefaction process. Because to make LNG, you have to cool gas. And to cool gas, you have to compress it. And you have to burn natural gas or uh, find some other form of energy to get that done. Uh, Those are incremental emissions. And there are some methane emissions related to incremental gas and gas transmission. So, you know, Canada would have incremental carbon emissions um, that would run counter to the current pledges Canada has made under the Paris Accord. And in respect of crude oil, uh, Canada could uh, expand its production out of the oil sands. There certainly will be an economic incentive for that with prices over $100 a barrel, The question is, without more pipeline capacity, how are we going to get that out? So it begs the question, again, of making TMX a national priority to get it completed more quickly, and of course, the age-old question of having the Biden administration reverse itself on KXL.
0: Just for listeners to put this into context, uh, Europe gets 40% of its natural gas from Russia. It gets about 25% of its crude oil exports from Russia. And they've set a very ambitious timetable to try to wean them off that dependence uh, because ultimately um, it puts money in Russia's coffers and has for many, many, many years. But as, as you were pointing out, I mean, Canada's opportunity here to enhance to use a word that I never like to use, but to enhance global energy security is simply to provide more, say, LNG into the global market. So if we produce it out west and send it to Asia, you're you're providing energy security because you're allowing uh, you're allowing other countries to buy from elsewhere. That's how it works. That's how the that's how Canada can help global energy security up to uh, ultimately.
2: Yes, you have it absolutely right. Like Canadian LNG supply will physically go to places like South Korea and northern China because that transportation route is actually a relatively close one in LNG terms. And it will enable other LNG sources in Africa, particularly North Africa, to get to Central Europe. And the overall system is better optimized. But the point is that if North America starts producing more LNG, there is more available that can displace Russian gas and keep the cost of LNG uh, supply in total to uh, Central Europe more affordable and still provide the fundamental economics to get these projects uh, in the, to be economic for places like the United States and Canada.
0: One of the things you've written about in the past, though, is that because for, for a variety of reasons, for a country that has the kinds of, of resource riches that we have, we have very little infrastructure now in place to deliver it. And that infrastructure takes a long time to build. Well, so we, we need to also be realistic about that. Our contribution to to world
2: lng markets is at best uh, two to five years away somewhere in that time frame. like maybe we can get lNG Canada on line within at the outer edge of two years, and these other kinds of projects will probably come into the market five years. But the point is once you go down that path, you are fundamentally uh, putting more uh, leverage into the hands of you know, the West vis-a-vis Russia than if we don't embark on that. And if we don't, uh, Central Europe is going to be more vulnerable. And, you know, the basic dynamic of what uh, has been tolerated out of Russia just gets more, um, uh, is just prolonged. So either this country seizes this opportunity, uh, and to do that, it's going to have to adjust to some degree its climate ambitions.
0: Which brings me to my next point, which we'll get to right after this. I'm speaking with Dennis McConaughey, a former pipeline executive and author on climate and energy issues in Canada. We will talk about the politics of all this because at the end of the day, the politics matters. That's after this. I'm back with Dennis McConaughey, a former pipeline executive and an author on climate and energy issues in Canada. We've been talking about the invasion of Ukraine, uh, certainly a move on the part of Europe, to wean itself quite quickly or as fast as it can off Russian energy imports on which it is heavily dependent uh, and certainly something that gives provides a huge amount of money to Russia itself um, and where Canada fits in in all this. So if I hear you right, there is a political reckoning now to be had, probably one the Liberal government didn't want to have to make this quickly or at all. Um, but we're faced now with the very real question of energy security uh, versus the very or perhaps alongside the very real commitments we've made to fight climate change. Politically, where does the, where do you think this goes and what do politicians need to be talking about?
2: Well, uh, I'll be very straightforward on this. I think it is going to be very difficult for the Trudeau government, even more so after its coalition with the NDP, but just as difficult for the Biden administration to entirely embrace uh, the notion of energy security justifying expanded hydrocarbon production. And, and what this really gets to in within these governments is their preparedness to accept increased hydrocarbon production, less regulatory constraint on realizing that production and giving the assurance to people who are going to invest that, you know, those investments are not going to be disrupted over time. So, To the extent that energy security matters now (laughs) and that our ambitions on dealing with climate have to modify, I think this is a very difficult challenge for governments of the orientation of Biden and Trudeau. I mean, that's just being honest
0: about the reality of where we find ourselves. And yet we saw the German government, um, you know, with, with Greens in power with them, make a very serious commitment about energy Independence. I mean, they don't produce energy, but clearly they're, they're looking, you know, there, there must be a conversation to be had somewhere because countries in Europe, such as Germany, heavily reliant on, on Russia, are starting to say, listen, we need the energy security now. So let's uh, talk. Sure. So, I mean, they've come to the realization that they
2: can't run their economies without a significant natural gas component. And, you know, in the world of Merkel, an integration with Russia still seemed plausible. Now that's been disrupted. So it, it, they can't really sustain their economies without significant natural gases being a major part of their primary energy supply. Question is, where do they get it? <coughs> and does Canada and the United States become a contributor to world LNG supply beyond what they're doing today? Like, in, And as I said before, uh, if those, if these two countries, Canada and the United States, are going to become bigger LNG producers... Climate ambitions within Canada, and if we define climate ambitions as being uh, where do our emissions go over the short and medium term, well, they're going. We're, we're, it's going to be more difficult to reach what we're already to begin with implausible emission reduction targets. So that's really the the choice these governments have to make.
0: When you look at the political dialogue over this, and I use the word dialogue sarcastically, because what we hear a lot of is sort of, this is just my perception sort of as an agnostic, we hear a lot of sort of, you know, angry preaching out of Jason Kenney, for instance, out of Alberta, out of those who support um, expanding energy production. And we hear a lot of sort of preachy words coming out of those who oppose it. And there doesn't seem to be ever this realization that we could actually have a a pretty honest conversation about energy security and about climate change. And maybe the time to have it is now.
2: Well, so a couple of things that I would just offer in that respect. Uh, It is very difficult for me to imagine a world out to 2050 or beyond without a significant amount of natural gas and crude oil consumption in the world. Uh, Simply because um, we know places like India and China are not committing to emission reductions. We also know that it is very difficult uh, to not be using natural gas for not just to make world fertilizer, which is going to become even more necessary when, you know, the world's going to try to avoid a massive food crisis, uh, it's very hard to make fertilizer without reforming natural gas. Likewise, it's very hard to cope with increasing amounts of renewables in energy, in electricity grids, without having natural gas available to balance out the, the, the reality of intermittency. So it's very hard for me to imagine a world where crude oil, and again, for crude oil, it's very hard to substitute it for petrochemicals, which are like omnipresent in our economy, and fuels we use for mobility very hard to substitute those things. So in a world that I don't really think can do without hydrocarbons, we need to have more realistic emission targets and carbon policies than simply saying we're going to try to meet 1.5C by decarbonizing. <coughs> Rather, I think we have to have a balanced approach which says we're primarily going to rely on carbon pricing to incent lower carbon emission technologies while at the same time not eliminating hydrocarbons. And and that really speaks to the G7 taking the lead in a different approach to uh, global climate change than what the UN process has directed us to. I mean, that's what I think would be a constructive way forward if we had the political
0: leadership that could do that. For the time being, an extra 200,000 barrels a day, I gather the... Uh, the uh, Jonathan Wilkinson was in Paris today. So we are making some small commitments, but it feels like we're a long way from adding a whole lot to this. uh, So that's
2: on the crude oil side. So, you know, at $100 a barrel, people should understand uh, Mm -hmm. getting an extra two or 300,000 barrels into the market over the next 24 months, I think is entirely possible. The question is, uh, could Canada get not just 300, but up to an incremental million, and fill up an X case, uh, you know, a KXL pipeline, for instance? Uh, that that's like still possible if there was the will to do it. Uh, but as I've said before, I think the real the real choice for Canada, as much as anything, li- lies on the natural gas LNG side as it does in you know the incremental expansions on on, on our oil sands.
0: We'll leave it at that. Thank you so much. Lots to think about. I think this will be a discussion we'll be having for uh, quite a while. (laughs) Quite a while. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yes, diamonds may be forever. Or in the case of our next story, about 4 billion years old. As the closest planet to the sun, Mercury is certainly a fascinating spot. And not one we know a whole lot about. Its days are long. Its years are short. Daytime temps reach 426 degrees Celsius at night with no atmosphere, it plummets to below 179 below zero. And just to make it a little more remarkable, new research shows that the tiny planet's crust could contain get this 16 quadrillion tons of diamonds. 16 quadrillion tons of diamonds. How could that possibly be? To explain, is the scientist behind that very research. Kevin Cannon is an assistant professor of geology and geological engineering, as well as space resources with the Colorado School of Mines. Kevin, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here.
1: Thank you. Great to be here.
0: It does make for an astounding headline, obviously. You found that maybe one-third of Mercury's surface could be a diamond crust. Uh, That sounds remarkable. How is that?
1: Yeah, so uh, recent work from NASA's Messenger mission Uh, has shown us that a good fraction of Mercury's surface is covered with this mysterious dark material. And the leading hypothesis is that that material is actually graphite. Um, That's the same material that makes up uh, pencil. uh, It's replaced pencil lead Uh, as a writing utensil. Um, And this is believed to have formed very early on in Mercury's history, uh, that when Mercury was uh, completely molten, that this graphite crystallized and floated to the surface to form Mercury's first crust. Uh, The material has since been worked into the uh, volcanic material that's been erupted, and so it's been diluted. Uh, But what we think is that some of that graphite in that original crust has been transformed into diamond through the intense shock from impacting asteroids and comets.
0: Because I gather Mercury... uh Uh, looks a bit like our moon. It's quite cratered and it does get hit a lot. Is that right?
1: Yes, that's right. So very early on in the solar system, four to three billion years ago, uh, the rate that asteroids and comets were hitting the planets was much higher, uh, orders of magnitude higher than at present. And so if you look at the surface of Mercury or the moon, really all you see are successive generations of impact craters uh, that have formed over time.
0: Now, not to get too into, you know, how diamonds are formed, but essentially that's exactly how they are formed under that intense pressure, right?
1: Yes. So on earth, uh, we have diamonds that have mostly formed uh, deep in the mantle, uh, just from the crushing pressure of all the rocks sitting on top of them. Uh, But we can also have very intense pressure Uh, at the surface, right at the point of uh, an impact of an asteroid or comet. So you can either have that long, sustained, deep pressure in the interior of a planet uh, or that shorter duration, intense shock pressure uh, from an impact.
0: I gather, though, from from what's been written and how your research was covered, um, that the diamonds, when you talk about the diamond crust of
1: Mercury, you're not necessarily talking about what you might see at Tiffany's. That's right. We're not talking about the the large, clear uh, gemstones that you can cut into jewelry. Uh, These are probably very fine grained. Uh, They're probably very dark and cloudy, and they're likely mixed with other carbon phases. So some of that original graphite, uh, maybe some carbon in other forms. So probably very quite messy. And what we're suggesting is not that, you know, the entire surface is is covered in pure diamonds. Uh, it's probably only a, a small fraction, maybe one or two percent in these particular terrains, uh, the, this, these dark terrains that cover Mercury's uh, surface.
0: So it's not glittering in this. It wouldn't glitter like a diamond, you might expect. But it is, I mean, still 16 quadrillion tons. Is that was was that the number that uh, that was estimated?
1: Yeah. So that's based on some computer modeling um, just taking some assumptions about how thick this initial layer of graphite might have been, uh, and then looking at how many craters have impacted Mercury uh, and how much of that might have been turned into diamond. And so that's an estimate for the entire crust uh, of Mercury. Most of that is going to be buried uh, quite deep, up to kilometers beneath the surface. Uh, But yes, that's what our our models uh, are predicting. If you're
0: just tuning in to a little more conversation, I'm speaking with Kevin Cannon, Assistant Professor of Geology and Geological Engineering and Space Resources with the Colorado School of Mines. We're talking about his research, showing that uh, a good chunk of Mercury's crust could in fact be uh, crusted with diamonds. Sounds remarkable. Um, One of the things that science fiction has always leaned on quite a lot is space mining. So in this case, would those diamonds, I mean, first of all, would it be economical or even reasonable to try and mine them but also is it even feasible
1: yeah so mercury is very tough to to get to and to orbit around and land on um, so that's really why we've only seen for the most part, uh, spacecraft that have flown by mercury uh, and then recently we've had some that have gone into orbit around that planet um, but we haven't yet gotten to the point where we've even landed on the surface so that would be the first step to uh, eventual mining you need to get down to the surface uh, there are People talking about uh, proposals to do that with with future missions, um, but yeah, certainly it's at the Colorado School of Mines here. We have an entire program in space resources. Uh, of course, this sounds very futuristic, but there's a lot of work uh, being done in the near term, uh, particularly focused on Moon, Mars, and asteroids. Uh, but eventually, one day Mercury might uh, might come into the conversation. I don't know that these diamonds would be necessarily economic, as we talked about. They're not really uh, you know, gemstone quality, uh, likely, uh, but, you know, maybe as a bulk, bulk source of carbon, uh, there's also a good use of diamonds. Most diamonds are used in industry as, as an abrasive. And so perhaps, uh, you know, these could find a use, uh, for that application.
0: I understand there is in fact, a European space agency, uh, initiative to once again, travel to Mercury. Will that allow you to find out anything more about, about
1: this research you're doing? Yes. So NASA had their messenger mission uh, to Mercury, and uh, ESA is following up with a mission called Colombo uh, that's going to be reaching Mercury in a few years. And it has a complementary set of instruments. Uh, it has some different instruments than were on uh, NASA's messenger mission. Uh, and one of those in particular is a, a type of infrared camera uh, that allows you to see a, a different variety of minerals uh, than the instruments on the messenger mission. And so it's possible that uh, if there is this small fraction of, of diamond in some of the surface material, uh, that those would actually show up that they could be detected uh, with this Bepi Colombo mission.
0: You've also mentioned that, uh, that in fact there are other planets where diamonds could be even more prevalent that you've been, I, I imagine either looking at or at least contemplating.
1: That's right. So, What has been really a revolution in the last 20, 30 years is the discovery and now characterization of planets in other solar systems, the exoplanets. Uh, There was an announcement recently this week that I think the total is up to 5,000 confirmed extra extra solar planets. And some of those planets formed in unique solar systems where maybe there is even more carbon around than there was in our solar system. Uh, and people have talked about the potential for carbon exoplanets. So, uh, if those planets exist, if if there are planets that are uh, made with uh, much more carbon than than the, those in our solar system, uh, then this process of of turning some of that into diamonds, uh, turning graphite into diamond, could also uh, happen on uh, those other those exoplanets.
0: I mean, it's it, the work obviously you do in space exploration or at least in space mining is, is fascinating in terms of where we're at with that right now how close are we to in you know within the realm of the possible how close are we to actually mining on space and what is it that we would be looking for and finding that could complement what's done here on earth
1: yeah i think it's definitely a lot closer than most people would realize. Um, What's going to be happening over the next few years are some demonstration missions. So uh, NASA has a program called CLIPS, that's the Commercial Lunar Payload Services, uh, where they've contracted with a bunch of companies developing uh, small, low-cost lunar landers. And so there's going to be a lot of payloads on those landers for science, but also some payloads uh, doing proof-of-concept work and testing the type of technology uh, that we would want to actually extract resources Uh, We also have missions like NASA's Viper mission uh, that's going to be prospecting for water ice at the poles of the moon. Uh, So I think those are some of the early applications uh, is looking at uh, water, either on the moon or asteroids, uh, and then also uh, building materials. So all the planets uh, that we know are covered in broken up rock and soil. And there are a lot of proposals to turn that material into structures, things like 3D printing habitats uh, and so on. So I think those are some of the near-term opportunities, uh, looking for water that could be turned into propellant, uh, and then also building materials.
0: And and, and is it, are we in, within the realm of actually being able to commercially extract extract that stuff on on planets that aren't too too far away?
1: I think so. I think what we're seeing now is some of the larger companies with a lot more capital. So, uh, Blue Origin and SpaceX—they're really moving ahead. Uh, Blue Origin has been hiring a lot of people to, uh, to work on space resources. They've purchased a company called Honeybee Robotics recently who do uh, really fantastic work on robotic systems and have a lot of interest in drilling and excavation. So I think we are getting quite close um, and I think it's just going to be a matter of uh, getting the, the capital and the, uh, getting the government buy-in uh, to push this over the edge.
0: For the time being, though, a fascinating story about the diamond crusts of mercury. Are you going to do any more? Are you continuing this research?
1: Yeah. So, what was presented recently at a, at a conference was were some early results. And so, I'm definitely going to uh, continue to flesh those out and hopefully uh, have this submitted as a peer reviewed publication in the near future. Well, Kevin Cannon,
0: thank you so much for your time and your information. A fascinating field of study.
1: Thank you very much. <laughs>
0: Well, the huge number of people escaping the fighting in Ukraine is a reminder of all those displaced by wars of the past and those still ongoing, including Syria, where more than 6.7 million people have fled since 2011. Author Omar El Akkad is a former Global Mail reporter who's covered stories around the world, including in Afghanistan, where we met. His latest book, the Giller Prize-winning What Strange Paradise, is told through the eyes of a nine-year-old Syrian boy who wakes up on the shores of a Greek island After the decrepit and packed boat he is in capsizes, he's the only survivor rescued by a European teen who lives on the island. In alternating chapters, we learn about Amir's life and how he came to be on the boat, and we follow him and the girl as they make their way towards safety. It's about war, displacement, disorientation, and the dreams of those fleeing violence. Here's an excerpt. Oriented as they are, many of the shipwrecked bodies appear to have been spat up landward by the sea or of their own volition to have walked out from its depths and then collapsed a few feet later. Except the child. Relative to the others, he is inverted, his head closest to the lapping waves, his feet nestled into the warmer, lighter sand that remains dry even at highest tide. He is small, but somewhere along the length of his body marks the sea's farthest reach. An excerpt from What Strange Paradise. To talk about the book and much more, I welcome author Omar al Akhad. Thanks for being here tonight, Omar. I appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. I guess because it's in the news, and we've been talking about it so much over the past month, because your most recent novel really is about displacement, uh, people forced to flee home for circumstances completely beyond their control. I was wondering what you had made so far of what we've witnessed in Ukraine and just the surge of people leaving and how it spoke to some of the same things that you were trying to explore in your most recent book.
3: I think one of the difficulties of writing the kind of stories that I write, and this isn't to say that I write them well or that I've succeeded in anything I intended, just I tend to write actively political books. And I think all novels are political. They're either political by virtue of their active space or their negative space, what they choose to talk about or what they feel comfortable ignoring. And because I write actively political books, they tend to have a very bumpy relationship with the present. So, you know, when I wrote American War, I didn't know that Trump was going to be running for office. I didn't know that the book would come out in that moment and be read a certain way as a result. And obviously, when I wrote What Strange Paradise, I didn't know that we would be talking about Russia invading Ukraine. So I'm not, uh, I don't have a crystal ball. Um, nonetheless, the book is always read right in the light of the moment. And I think for me, one of the difficulties is that we live in a kind of society where it's very easy to conflate the individual and the systemic. You know, on an individual level, you are watching human beings undergo immense misery and a massive refugee exodus. On a systemic level, you can see that the reaction, particularly in the West, particularly in Europe, and to a lesser extent, North America, the reaction to these human beings is fundamentally different than the reaction to refugees who happen to have darker skin or come from a different part of the world or be easier to be termed as other. And so that is not the fault of the human beings who are seeking refuge. But it is very, very difficult to look at that situation and not see a very clear hierarchy of who gets to matter and who gets to be treated as human with the basics prerequis- basic prerequisites of what it means to be human. Safety, shelter, community. Um, so it's a, it's, it's a tragedy and it is horrific what these human beings are having to go through just as it was horrific to watch this happen in Syria, to watch this happen in Afghanistan, to watch this happen all over the world, and watch an entirely different reaction on the part of the West. Um, So it's doubly infuriating, I suppose.
0: It feels like this is yet another example of how the mass movement of people, um, You mentioned it in your book, the idea of scarcity is what's driving people out in most places. In this case, it's war. Um, But this idea that this century may well be defined, as others have been, but this century may well be defined by people on the move. And we have to find a way as a society to get used to it and to understand how we help best or, or how we're supposed to think about the fact that there are so many people around the world moving, looking for somewhere new to be.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, I'm not. Again, I'm not. I'm not a particularly apolitical person. You know, I think every now and then you run into one of these guys who works on Bay Street. You know, a hardcore capitalist who will talk your ear off about the power of the invisible hand. And uh, I'm one of those people, but for the invisible foot, I'm, I'm very much of the opinion that human beings should be able to move freely, and that the onus should be on the state to tell me why I can't go somewhere, rather than me proving why I can. Um, that's obviously a function of the kind of life I've had, having left my home country at five and basically spent the rest of my life as a guest on someone else's land. Um, but I have very little respect for this kind of innate sanctity of the borders of the nation state at the expense of human lives. I just don't have that. Um, a lot of people will call that naive and I fully understand that, but none of that changes the fact that what we're seeing right now, in terms of the forced movement of human beings, is quite possibly the beginning of a much greater wave. You know, over the next few decades, if these predictions of climate change are anywhere near correct, we could be seeing orders of magnitude more people moving. And if a bunch of Arabs and North Africans on a boat showing up in the Mediterranean, is enough to cause one of the richest societies in human history to absolutely lose its mind and undertake brutal inhuman policies in response, I can only imagine what that's going to look like when you have orders of magnitude more people showing up. Um, I know that as a society, we're very, very good at sort of passing the buck and mortgaging the futures of, of, of future generations, but we can't ignore this for much longer. We have to come up with a definition, for example, of what a climate refugee is and what obligations the world has to people who are displaced from their land. We have a very good set of rules dating back to essentially the post war period of what it means when you are driven from your land by force. We have a much fuzzier set of rules, and in fact, in some cases, no rules whatsoever about what happens when your land is driven from you, what happens when the sea level rises. And you are in a Pacific Island that is now underwater. We need to codify that in some way, because we can't just continue to ignore this problem. This is going to become a bigger and bigger thing. And right now we are incredibly poorly prepared
0: for it. Just so listeners know, uh, Omar was born in Egypt. You moved to Qatar and then came to this country, to Canada, uh, in your teens, I think 16, if, I'm, if I yeah. remember correctly. Um, a bit about to go back to the book because the book very much is is a is a personal tale, in many ways of this young boy, Amir, um, a nine-year-old who's been forced from from Syria, who winds up in Egypt, and then finds his way quite almost accidentally um, onto one of these boats you've just described that crosses the Mediterranean daily with people full of people looking at the mercy of of, of the elements. Uh, often, often in in poorly built boats or old boats, looking for refuge uh, in in the in the West, essentially. What motivated you? I mean, what was the inspiration f- specifically f- to write this story, and why did you think it needed to be told?
3: The earliest thing I have in terms of sort of a genesis moment, the moment I go back to a lot, it was in 2012. So I was still working at the Globe and Mail at the time, and they shipped me down to uh, to Cairo. I was in the, um, the aftermath of the Arab Spring. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, I was riding around one night with an old high school friend who was complaining about the rent. You know, why the rent's too high? It's the most universal thing in the world to complain about. Um, and at one point I asked, okay, so what's, what's the rent for an apartment in your building, for example? He said, uh, well, do you mean the locals price or do you mean the Syrians price? I said, well, what the hell is the Syrian's price? What are you talking about? He said, well, we've had this influx of people show up here recently and charge them three times as much. What are they going to do? Go somewhere else? And it quickly became clear that this wasn't just a rent thing. You you go down to um, the fruit and vegetable vendor down the street, and as soon as you open your mouth, they can tell from your accent that you're not from here. They put two and two together. They realize they can gouge you. And this isn't like a faraway place. I mean, Egypt and Syria for a while were the same country. Um, so it's not like you're looking at someone from, from far away. This is someone who is very, very close to you. And nonetheless, the casualness of that cruelty, just how easy it was to exploit the most vulnerable, was the instigating moment when I, you know, whenever I think of a question that I can't find an answer to, but it also makes me quite angry. That's when I retreat into fiction. Uh, fiction for me is where to sit with with these kinds of questions, and so that's when I started sketching out ideas of of how to talk about something like this and how to think about something like this and It took the better part of ten years off and on to to sort of um, put it together and during the writing process um, was you know a lot of the writing took place during the height of the uh, what they call the refugee crisis um, and you were constantly seeing. News stories, images, these horrific accounts of what was happening to people trying to make this journey. That all of these accounts would show up wrapped in a bubble of outrage. How could we let this happen? How could we let this happen? Last for about 24 hours. And then everybody would move to be outraged by the next thing. And so I think one of the things that novels do quite well is that they allow you to dwell. I wanted to do, I wanted to dwell on this. That
0: was the instigating moment that was back in, in 2012. I'm speaking with Omar al author of the What Strange Paradise, the winner of the 2021 Scotiabank Giller Prize. We'll be back with more from Omar after. That. I'm speaking with Omar al the author of What Strange Paradise, the winner of the 2021 Scotiabank Giller Prize, a novel that follows a young Syrian boy who washes up on shore after the boat he's in with many other people seeking refuge in Greece at the time, uh, coming over from Egypt, sinks or capsizes, and he winds up on the beach and it follows his journey uh, as he tries to escape or essentially find a new on his own. And he befriends, a young woman befriends him, a young woman who's not from Greece, but is also European. What was the, when you were trying to describe the friendship between these two main characters in your book... What, what message were you trying, what were you trying to convey with that? Because clearly her intentions are always good, um, but she's surrounded by a lot of others whose intentions are not. And you explore a lot of what builds these prejudices against people fleeing, the vulnerable, as you spoke about uh, before when Syrians were in Cairo. What message were you trying to convey there?
3: That's a really, really interesting question, um, because it's, it's, for me, the, the load-bearing beams of the two books I've published are very different. In, in American War, the load-bearing beam, the central one, is the character, uh, the character of Surat Chestnut. Mm. And in What Strange Paradise, it's a relationship. It's a relationship between Amir and Vanna. And, um, you know, the book steals from a lot of places. Uh, it steals primarily from the two works that are cited in the epigraphs page, uh, Peter Pan, and this short story called An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, which if you've read, you sort of know uh, structurally what's going to happen in this book. Um, It also steals from the Odyssey and Paradise Lost and a bunch of other places, but um, it also steals from my own experiences as a child. I grew up in Qatar Uh, at the time, and I suspect this is still the case today, 90% of the population of Qatar is non qatari It's people who've come from somewhere else to cash in on the oil and gas money. And so, you know, you'd be at the beach or at a park or wherever, and you'd see another kid and that natural childhood instinct to make friends would kick in. But you would naturally assume that they don't speak your language. And so you start doing hand gestures and you do all the stuff that ends up, ends up finding its way into the book. Um, a lot of that relationship to me between those two children is about the, the, the sort of necessary asymmetry of kindness. You know, I think one of the reasons that the idea of empathy gets a bad rap in this part of the world is because it's so tied with individual agency. You know, it's important to feel other people's pain and to feel other people's experiences. And if I feel it hard enough, I can make things better through my own powers of empathy. And I think that second part is where I get caught up. I think empathy in of itself is extremely necessary. But this idea that if you empathize hard enough, you can change the world, that's, I don't think that's what empathy is for. I think Vanna is, is an example in my mind of somebody who is deeply concerned with the idea of being a good person and sees that as first and the the most important thing. But kindness in that kind of situation demands an asymmetry. You know, you reach a helping hand down to somebody, you have to be above them to begin with for that to happen. And so a lot of that relationship is about what happens once you get past good intentions. Um, and again, we talked at the beginning of this interview about the difference between the individual and the systemic. I think that's, that's a little bit of what I was trying to get at with that relationship is that there's only so much you can do individually in terms of your individual actions to offset damage that is caused as a result of a system, as a result of something systemic. So that to me was what I was thinking about when I was putting that relationship together.
0: The last question I was going to ask you about as we once again speak um, a lot about a refugee crisis or a refu- you know, people fleeing war, as we continue to hopefully not, not pay any attention to those still fleeing other wars, we've still made promises to people leaving Afghanistan, there continues to be people uh, trying to make it from Syria to here, what would you like Canadians to remember? What would you, what, I mean, the book itself is a message in many ways, but what would you be most satisfied that this country keep in mind when looking overseas at all those fleeing violence, looking for something better and, you know, dreaming of of building a new life here.
3: There is no such thing as far away or a long time ago. And as a result of the kind of society we've set up, we have an, a massive negative space of people who need to suffer so that we can continue to not suffer. And obviously, the definition of we differs greatly from person to person, but that negative space keeps growing. And the number of people who suffer by necessity keeps growing. And eventually, that's not going to hold and it's not going to be negative space anymore. We owe these people who are fleeing and looking for safety, we owe them that safety because it is the decent human thing to do. And also, because we can't continue to enlarge the masses of people who have to suffer such that the society we've built keeps holding in this present state. One way or another, that bubble is going to burst. And we can at the very least have some kind of plan as to how to reduce the suffering such that it doesn't burst and such that we don't have to live looking away from an ever-increasing Portion of human beings who are suffering. I think that is a basic prerequisite for having a society that that functions. Um, I know that at a policy level, all of this stuff is very, very difficult to implement, and I'm just here sort of spouting off, um, you know, philosophical um, nothings. But that, to me, is a basic prerequisite of having a halfway
0: um, decent society. Omar Alakad. Um- makes perfect sense to me thank you so much for your time and your insight and for talking about your book congratulations uh it feels a long way from the time we spent together in afghanistan but um it really wasn't that long ago and congratulations on on both books and the success they've they've met thank you so much such a pleasure talking to you again